So ODOT two years ago gave a report to council saying we're moving forward with this project, protect the bike lanes because it's safer. And now they're saying, well, uh, upon further review, we feel like buffer bike lanes are equally safe. So we're gonna switch back to buffer bike lanes. If you don't get protected bike lanes put on Sunset Boulevard that are in the mobility plan, there will be no way to enter downtown Los Angeles north of MacArthur Park in the entire city. Is that clear? Like that's how important these bike lanes are. We've had 40 years of vehicular cyclists gaslighting the facts. All right, welcome to Bike Talk KPFK on the live stream. I'm now on Zoom. This is Don Ward with Nick Richard. One thing is the California Senate Transportation Committee will be voting on the bicycle safety stop bill on June 29th. Californians will be able to roll through stop signs if that goes through. Pretty awesome. Yesterday, the Metro Board of Directors voted to give local cities control over how to spend highway tax on public streets. There was a uh, an action, a comment action by Streets for All that a lot of people emailed in and we got our way, right? Yeah. It's, yeah, Measure M, what they included in Measure M was a whole bunch of freeway money. I think it was like maybe 30 or 40%. I forget exactly how much it was, but it was to kind of sweeten the pot for political support. I always hated that, that we're putting highway money in the Measure M. It should just be all transit and biking, walking, but whatever. Hmm. But now it sounds like they've moved some of that money over. So I guess we got to have Joe Linton on and get into the weeds with, about that. But it sounds like it was a good thing. Yeah, we should. We could have had Joe, but we got a packed show tonight. We'll get him another time. Um, that's about it for my... Oh, also bike parts are still hard to get. Really? That's what I'm hearing. Okay. Good thing I have a back stock of bike parts and stuff. <laughs> I, haven't I, haven't, had, I haven't had I, to go to a bike shop in a long time. The last thing I needed was tires and tubes and I got them. So I don't know, but I am hearing that they're still, that they're still hard to get. Maybe our yeah. first, maybe our first guest can weigh in on anything. Speaking of first guest, let's go to our first guest, Dave Campbell, who's the advocacy director for bike East Bay. He's going to tell us what's happening up there. Apparently, some of the first protected bike lanes in Oakland are now under threat of getting ripped out. Is that correct? Welcome to the show, Dave. Yeah, glad to be here, Don. And that is correct. On Telegraph Ave in Kono District, we call it. The city installed parking protected bike lanes back in 2016. It was part of a repaving project down there. And for those who aren't from the Bay Area, Telegraph Ave goes from downtown Oakland to UC Berkeley. And this is the first part of the road from downtown Oakland. And the project was kind of slow to, to get upgraded with posts and some planter boxes and some kind of car stop, rubber car stops, better define where the cars park and how they should slowly make right turns. And so that took some years and was a project that had the support of the business district to go in. Now the business district is concerned and ready to take out the bike lane and move the parking back to the curb. They still support having a bike lane. So they would put the bike lane out in the street between the parked cars and the moving cars. And we have serious concerns about that because there's just so much activity going on there. It's a pretty active commercial district. 
lots of cars stopping and starting and dropping off, picking up, commercial loading, and that sort of thing. And it's all going to take place in the bike lane out in the street if they end up doing that. So it's not going to be a bike lane. It's going to be a double parking lane, essentially. So we want to keep the curbside protected bike lane. It's much safer, in our opinion, and it's certainly much more popular than an in-street bike lane with a bunch of double parking. What is the business district exactly worried about? If parking was preserved, why do they care? What are they saying? When Oakland put in the protected bike lane several years ago, they did remove some of the on-street parking. It was around 20% of the on-street parking. And so some businesses perhaps feel that if they go back to in-street bike lanes, painted bike lanes, and put the parking next to the curb, that 20% of lost parking will reappear. And that, of course, is not the case because Oakland uses their more modern standards for daylighting crosswalks at intersections. And so they pull the parking back from crosswalks at signalized and unsignalized intersections. So they wouldn't get that parking back, but I think they're thinking they will. And so that's one reason they're supporting the the switch back to painted bike lanes. But they also feel like it's a safety issue. With protected bike lanes, you're riding behind a row of parked cars. And if a car is moving in your direction and making a right across the bike lane, they're making a right across the parking lane, so to speak, and across the crosswalk. And they're concerned that the sight lines aren't great. And they've seen near misses where cars almost hit somebody bicycling. So they say it's a safety issue. They say that's our number one concern is safety. And so that's great to hear. And and it's also good to hear that they're supportive of having some kind of bike facility on the street. Uh, Mm -hmm. That's good. But the safety data, there's all kinds of safety data out there, the kind that get logged with the CHP, with the police department, and just what people see every day on the street. Uh, The collision data, though, shows that serious injuries and collisions have actually held steady since the project went in, maybe gone down just a little bit. There's about 10 to 12 serious crashes every year on this street, in this section of the street. And, you know, that's good because the number of people walking and biking on the street has almost doubled. Serious crashes hold steady and there's more people on the street and it's a safer street. Yeah. So there's there's been counts that has shown that there is more cycling activity. So the per capita bicycle mile traveled collision rate has actually gone down if there's more cyclists, right? Right, exactly, exactly. There's, there are community ambassadors out on the street and they I'm sure they see near misses, uh, no doubt. The point I would make here is I'm sure they're seeing what to them is a near miss, or maybe if someone did get hit and didn't get hurt, so they just got back up on their bike or you know got back up on their feet. So they report that and provide that feedback to the city. But before the project went in, it was a five-lane road, like a lot of streets around California. And when cars would buzz past bicyclists, you know, six inches and their uh, side view mirror would rub up against your elbow, the ambassadors weren't reporting that. They weren't saying, hey, there's all these near misses out here. We got to do something about it because the street looks like every other street they've ever known. And so they just don't notice these things. But you put in the city's first protected bike lane and now people are bicycling behind a row of cars and a car is making a more noticeable right turn across the bikeway. They notice that. That's different. And so they're reporting that. And that's real. I, I'm not dismissing that. 
but they're not reporting the near misses on all the other streets where there aren't bike lanes because they don't see them. I've definitely had that kind of issue with protected bike lanes here in Los Angeles where they're, it's the sight lines and people make right turns into driveways. That's, that's, um, that is an unfortunate situation with those protected bike lanes that they don't, they're not bold enough with it. They don't take enough parking spaces out so that the sight lines are clear like they do in the Netherlands. Um, right. And like they do in Chicago, <laughs> in Chicago as well, mm. they do tend to remove more parking. And, you know, I think generally we're fine with removing more parking to improve sight lines. But if the business districts would rather have the parking and keep right. the bike lane, then, then we're, we're good with that too. It does require you to bike slower. You can't go as fast as the traffic or as fast as you might have gone with the traffic out mm. in the street, bicycling, mm. either with a bike lane painted out there or without one. If, uh, if we could have your anger translator talk about this, what would he say? <laughs> Wait a minute. Ask me that again. Uh, how, how furious am I? I mean, you're so like, you're like, on the one hand, there's, uh, it stayed the same. On the other hand, the number of people walking and biking has doubled. And that's, that's not ambiguous. That's, that's really saying something very clearly. And, and the business districts are thinking that somehow it's less safe. And, you know, I, I just, to reassure you, we don't have business districts listening to bike talk. So you can just go ahead and speak, <laughs> speak freely. I don't know about that, Nick. There's definitely people that have tuned in that are opposition okay. figures, okay. Okay. but it's fine. We should continue to speak openly Good. about it. It's not, nothing Good to, to know. Good to know. Uh, but there one, is, there is definitely one, a communication about the uh, Colorado bike lanes. Go ahead. Okay. Sorry. Well, I was just going to add a little more perspective to my, whatever my attitude here is the project a year ago, uh, as the city was getting ready to upgrade the protected bike lanes with curbs, you know, cement, six inch high curbs, to and, and actually narrow the bike lane by a foot so that it's even harder for a car to get into the bike lane with a six inch high curb. As the city was finalizing their designs for that, the council member in the district asked for the, for the project to be paused, reevaluated, redesigned with community input, almost starting over, if you will, even though the city had a grant to do this project. But the council member insisted, we're going to do an equity review. We're going to look at who has this project benefited, who has it impacted, and what can we do to make sure everyone is benefiting from the changes to the street. And so Bike East Bay was supportive of that. We've never done that kind of a, let's look back and see not only whether more people were biking or there were fewer crashes, but who's not benefiting from this project and what do we need to do to address that? We were very supportive of doing that. And so starting last fall through February, during the height of the pandemic, the timing couldn't have been worse. We were working with the city and the business district and the neighborhood council leader to figure out how to reevaluate the project and do some outreach to target some audiences, particularly Korean speaking audiences, uh, Amharic speaking audiences and senior residents in the area who hadn't weighed in on the project very loudly from the beginning and the city made that effort but the pandemic made it almost impossible so the city got something like 600 responses to a survey they were doing some on-street outreach at the korean market there for example 
they did some outreach to senior facilities to try to get a sense of, you know, how is this project impacting you? And to the extent they got feedback, people were saying, we like the protected bike lane. Uh, most of the people responding were white. And so that's the first criticism we're hearing is, look, 75% of the people who responded to this outreach were white. And so I say, all right, fine, throw those out. Let's look at the other 25%. What did they say? And they still said they prefer protected bike lane. It's a smaller sample of what was a small sample of a large district. And so it's not perfect outreach. It's not, it's not telling a 100% accurate story. But if you're trying to decide based on limited evidence, limited feedback, should we switch to buffered bike lanes or go to protected? That limited set of feedback would suggest you go to the protected bike lanes. And so I'm the a little, I'm trying again, to go. Can you just yeah. give us a difference again between buffered and protected? Yeah, the protected bike lane is along the curb and there's a row of parking, on-street parking to your left outside of the bike lane. And then there's the travel lanes and the turn lanes. And then you switch the parking in the bike lane for a buffered bike lane. So it goes sidewalk, parking, bike lane, travel lane, or the buffered bike lane. And so if you're in, you know, regular bike lane, buffered bike lane, just a wider painted bike lane, cars parking or driving across the bike lane legally, cars pulling out of the parking or crossing the bike lane legally, it's the double parking that's illegal. And it's still going to happen just because there's enough activity in the area that People want to park right in front of that business that they're going to. Okay, thanks. Yeah. And so there wasn't much of an equity review of the project due to the pandemic. And what, what does infuriate me is now the city is saying, based on this equity review, the community wants buffered bike lanes. So we're switching back to buffered bike lanes. We did this equity review. It wasn't perfect, but it was good in their minds. And we're switching back to buffered bike lanes in the name of equity. And that that is infuriating because it was the, the process was not an equity review. It was entirely a political review. You know, what did the politics dictate here? And that's where and why and how the city landed on buffered bike lanes and not protected bike lanes. The city is trying to justify that buffer bike lanes are just as safe as protected bike lanes. We're not buying that either. I think they're just covering their ass to show that each option is equally safe and can be chosen when we know that protected bike lanes are way safer. The data shows that. National studies have shown that. Even this street uh, shows that. So that does get me a little worked up. Uh, mm -hmm. I would love to do an equity review a full, thorough equity review of this project. I know the city of Oakland is committed to you know, being a more equitable city. They have our 100% support for that. But this project fell way short in terms of that kind of a review. So is it a done deal? Are they going to, they're doing this or, or is there still a chance to uh, change their minds? Yeah. Uh, well, there's still a chance. It goes to council for a full council vote on July 6th. ODOT has put out their staff report, their presentation, their backup data. They put that out in early June, and then it went to the Bicycle Pedestrian Advisory Commission on June 17th, and the commission voted unanimously to support protected bike lanes. It was the Bike Ped Commission, so you know, it might have been more predictable. It went to the Oakland Public Works Subcommittee of Council this past Tuesday, uh, so there's four council members on that subcommittee out of a nine council city. And that council subcommittee voted 4-0 for the protected bike lanes. 
more on procedural reasons than substantive reasons. There were two council members to my read that were pretty strongly supportive of the protected bike lanes, led by council member Dan Kalb, super supportive. But the vote was 4-0 for the protected bike lanes. Let's send this on to the full council July 6th. The council member whose district this street is in, she's not on that subcommittee. So she has not voted or weighed in yet. And I think her voice is, you know, will be very persuasive on this issue. Mm. It's kind of the way things work in LA is like the local council person, the other council members will just vote with that council person, no matter what, because um, they view, you know, each of their little districts as their own kingdom and they don't want to cross each other on mm-hmm. their, on their issues. I guess it's kind of a similar situation up there. I think, I think so. I think that's true in any city probably that has council districts mm-hmm. like Oakland does. And, and to some extent, I'm, I think that's good. I don't think we need to take everything to the full city council. If the council member whose district the project is in is supportive and the community is supportive, and it's a good project, technically, then yeah, let's just go to that one council member and move forward and do something rather than take everything we do like we do in Oakland to the city council for approval. Is there any kind of, uh, I mean, this is now a, a uh, traffic design. Do they need to do an EIR to change it? I mean, you're removing infrastructure right shouldn't they have to do some kind of a safety study or eir or something like that to interesting good question you you've had to do eirs in the past to add a bike lane we've gone off and take bike lanes out so i don't know what the law says about that uh i don't know the answer to that i'm suspecting since the new law says adding bike lanes is not an environmental impact taking them out is probably not either but i'm just guessing no one's brought this up so i'll have to double check good question how, how much do you think that you are that this is all about ignorance how much well, is it's ignorance? Not, yeah it's more about we're trying to see what the complete picture is and no one can see the complete picture because we're talking about a you know a 10 block long stretch of telegraph you know, the people who live and work there probably have the most complete picture. They're there more than anyone else, but they're on their section of the street. So we're trying to figure out what's going on out there. Are people crashing into each other and getting hurt more often than before? What are these sight lines like? How are the businesses doing? For the most part, the businesses have not been complaining that, you know, they're losing money or they're going out of business. There's certainly been a lot of business changes on the street and given the pandemic even more. But they're, they're sticking to their story that their concern is safety. And so when it comes to safety, perceived safety is important, particularly if the perceived safety leads to customers not returning to the district and shopping because they perceive it's not safe. That's real. But in terms of safety of people walking and biking, we generally leave that to the safety experts, the tra- traffic engineer experts to advise us on what is safe or not. And so Oak Dot two years ago, gave a report to council saying, we're moving forward with this project, protected bike lanes, because it's safer. And now they're saying, well, uh, upon further review, we feel like buffer bike lanes are equally safe. So we're gonna switch back to buffer bike lanes. They were gonna, they were gonna upgrade this to a, I guess you'd call it a cycle path, right? Like a raised curb. That was the next step. And now right. they're trying to reverse that. 
that's just fascinating to me that 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 would um like who started that like who you know yeah the uh don the one reason that that has become a point of contention is this is a festival street mm -hmm. first friday takes place on the street and so whatever we do physically to protect the bike lane has to be able to handle a large crowd of 10, 15, 20,000 people. And so some people are saying the curbs would be a problem with the, with the vendors setting up and the attendees. We're not buying that. We just think that's a false concern because we've already had bus islands out on the street that people have sat on and vendors have set up on that are six inches high. And even the buffered bike lane is going to have some raised curbs at the intersections. So it's not like we're getting rid of everything that's physical. The ballers that are out there now, those are a little problematic because they're high and it's harder for tables to set up over them. Would the ballers go away when the curbs? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It'll just be curbs and maybe some planter boxes. It's fascinating to me where something like this comes from. Like who is back there? making chatter to start this storm here that that will erase this safety and i mean putting curbs in would be even better for yeah like that's more of a netherlands style mm -hmm. design we have marvin norman who is marvin. okay so you know him do you know him hey everyone i'm on i'm from time to time yeah. on to marvin and follow him on twitter Fellow transportation yeah, nerd, probably the nerdiest of nerds that comes up on our show. He, he has all the knowledge. You have a lot of in the weeds knowledge that that I don't. I definitely don't have. So it's great to have you on, Marvin. Welcome to the show. Oh, thank you. Glad to be back. What's your take on all this, Marvin? I don't know if you've been tuned into the show, but the they went from putting in a plan to put in curb separated cycle tracks to now buffered bike lanes. Yeah. I mean, that encapsulate, encapsulate America's approach to biking in a nutshell. <laughs> do they need to do an EIR to reverse this? Is that, I know they, I, they, they came out with a law that says that we don't have to. I to do take not out know. A bike lane? Hmm. Okay. I would suspect that because they are not, because, Dave, it was a 4-3 uh, lane conversion previously, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. So I would suspect that because it was a, it was, they're not adding lanes back. They're just switching where the bike lane is. It doesn't, it's probably going to be exempt. Um, okay. You know, the only wrinkle is that, because remember to get um, class fours, we have to define them as adjacent to the roadway, not part of the roadway. And so you could make the argument that it's widening the roadway. And so that requires the EIR because once you get rid of the class four element, now it's going to go back to the roadway. We'll have to look that one up. That's a good question. <laughs> but I mean, I, I don't want to try to set case precedent in filing EARs over. Well, I mean, it, it just seems like a double-edged sword, which is not good out. Marvin, wasn't there a city in Southern Cal that removed bike lanes somewhere within the last two years? I do not know. Um, I know there have been a couple cities adding them. They did it on Culver Boulevard, which I yeah, think is Los Angeles right there. Yeah, that's, that's, the, that's these guys out there. I mean, here in the Inland Empire, not very many cities have removed them. The closest we got was um, Israel was going to do a 4-3 with some bike lanes, just regular bike lanes. 
Mountains. And there was such an uproar of over this four-lane road with 5,080T that the city council agreed that they'll do a 5-4 conversion because, it, you know, they build it with the center turn lane already. So there was such an uproar that the city agreed that they'll do a 5-4 conversion instead to save four lanes and put in bike lanes, which inherently actually is, a, is makes it less safe because it has a four-lane road without the safety of the turn. And it doesn't even need that much space in the beginning. That's the closest we had. The, the, before that, the last big uproar was in, when Riverside did a 4-3 conversion with just regular bike lanes again. And it was a big um, uproar again. And like some of the council members said, it was the most activism they've seen in civic politics in decades. Over like uh, a one mile stretch of Fort Relay conversion on the secondary streets in the city, and they kept it, and now no one cares. The city's put in a couple more um, actual cycle tracks since then. But so the, the one other thing I'll say about this is that it is interesting if you look at um, some of like the bicycle Dutch videos. Um, he has a good one up. Um, he compares the difference between um, Den Haag and um, shoot, I forgot the other city, but. Um, when the Dutch did this, actually, they had kind of the same when they first started redoing all their in the 70s and redoing their bike infrastructure and putting it back in. They, they actually had a massive um, um, uh, resistance from the cities, uh, from the business owners as well. And in Den Haag, actually, the city, they never completely finished some of the cycle tracks because the business owners came in in the middle of the night and took them out. Can I ask, Dave, the business district says it's safety the council person says it's equity. Uh, do, do you think these are good faith reasons that people are giving? And if well, not, yeah. what, what are they? What are the real reasons? Well, safety is a good faith, real issue. And I think people's perceived safety, that's a real issue. It's not equal to actual safety, but what people are seeing and feeling and experiences that that does count. And I think when there are near misses that look different than the near misses you saw before the project. You know, that's real and we need to, you know, understand that and reassure people that's what we want. We want near misses because before we were having actual collisions. And so that's an improvement, not a problem. And then equity, yeah, the what kind of got this started was Telegraph and the Temescal district, the next business district to the north towards Berkeley. They were getting their street repaved, putting in protected bike lanes. And by then, Oak Dot had better standards. And so it was looking nicer. They were using nicer ballers. They were using colorful paint. It just looked a lot nicer. And so the Kono district said, hey, wait a minute. Ours looks like crap now. And Temescal is getting the, what should be the same project that we got, but we haven't gotten it. And so that's what started the initial equity concern was the more wealthy business district was getting a nicer version of the same five to three road diet with protected bike lanes. And that led to a more thorough equity review and an analysis, at least having a goal of which businesses are benefiting, which ones aren't and why, and what can we learn from that and how can we make sure all the businesses benefit from the street safety improvements. All right. And what are you going to, what are you going to do now? about this well tomorrow we're having a bike kono shop kono day out on the street and this past week we got ac transit our local bus operator their board of directors unanimously passed a motion to support the protected bike lanes the bus operator likes the protected bike lanes because it keeps the bikes away from the bus they're not mixing as they go down the road 
they really like that. They don't want the bikes back out in the street with the buses. So they unanimously supported us. So that helps. Uh, we still want to meet with the council member who, who's now a new council member in this district, meet with a new council member and you know, hear her thoughts and concerns and ideas. It's not the same council member that it's a new one. The, the one who initiated the equity review got voted out of office. So I have a new council member. Yes. What if you just get so, better, newer, protected bike lanes like they got on the north side or the Temesco? Well, that's the that's the plan. Now this capital this, upgrade is going to make the Kono bike lanes even nicer than the Temesco bike lanes. They are getting the protected lanes then? Well, the vote is July 6th. The okay. council will approve the curbs and the nicer protected bike lanes or have us switch them out for bike lanes. Dave, what happens to that funding if they decide to go with the um, parking management strategies and, and buffer lanes? <laughs> Good question. I think the city is seriously looking at losing the grant because it's a very much a different project with buffered bike lanes. The city is going right. to have to show that they're, they're, they will actually be buffered bike lanes and not double parking lanes. And I don't know how they're going to establish that at the state level. And then they have to also show that there's public support for these curb management strategies. And to date, there's been little to no outreach to the businesses on these curb management strategies, which include things like raising the parking rates in the Kono district to keep at least one space open for parking every block so that people won't double park. And the Kono district hasn't agreed to have their parking rates higher than all the other districts in downtown, for example. So do, do you think... Um... How likely do you think they are to support raising their parking rate? I don't think they're going to be likely at all. And and so if the council approves this switch and Oakdale goes to raise the rates and Kona says, hang on, we're not, a, we're not signing off on that, we've got a problem. And that's a problem I want to address now, not six months from now or a year from now when we have the problem. Right. But was it the ATP grant? Yeah, exactly. Yep. Well, yeah, I mean, the city, I mean, I, I hope no one would complain and get the city disqualified from future ATP grants. But I mean, they're supposed to like you, you we've, you've scored ATP grants with us as too, right? I haven't scored them. I went through the process, oh, you haven't scored score, any? but I didn't actually do it. Yeah. I so mean, they, they got an ATP grant <clears throat> to do, let me see if I understand this correctly. They got an ATP grant to do telegraph. And now that money might be at risk. They, right. may, they may not get that money. That sounds like a, a point to bring up, like a, a strong case that they need to move forward because they're losing money and losing jobs here. Yeah, so Council Member Shang Tao at the Public Works Committee, she was bringing this up. She was asking two or three questions like, are we going to lose this grant? And Ryan Russo, the director of OCDOT, you know, to his credit, he was very frank saying, while he's optimistic the city can keep the money he said i'm not going to guarantee you that we're going to keep this grant if we switch to buffer bike lanes the, i think most public works directors probably would not have been that frank and so kudos to him for that point and i think that's right there's maybe i don't know i don't know what the odds are maybe 50 50 they keep it they don't keep it if they switch it out it sort of depends on exactly what type of buffer bike lane design they're going to do and what these curb management strategies are to keep people from double parking in the bike lane. All right. Cool. Thanks. I wonder Dave. if there's also, uh, is there a, a lawyer out there that you can tap into and see if there is a chance that 
that this could, uh, you know, turn into a lawsuit, you know, like a EIR type lawsuit or something and just bring that up. Just be like, Hey, look, we're exposing ourselves to a lawsuit and the possibility of losing this grant money. This is a dumb idea. I think we could, you could probably just go with the idea that the line that you're creating a, a deficient condition for safety. Um, if there's anyone who ever gets hit in any of like the same direction type crashes that the separated bikeways reduce the possibility of, especially given that it's going to be, be upgraded to concrete, which provides even more protection. So, you know, anyone who gets like doored or anything on, if they go with the, the buffered bike lanes, I think would have a decent uh, lawsuit as, that the city knowingly created a, um, a deficient condition that led to their right. crash. Right. Yeah, I we may make that point. I don't think we're going to emphasize that too much. I think that just the hitting them on the protected bike lane is safer. I think that will resonate with council members rather than potential lawsuit. But we got a week. Maybe we'll change our minds. Yeah, and it's not like you guys are threatening the lawsuit. It's like, hey, this opens up the possibility. You know, it's going to take time for that to come to fruition if it ever does. But it's you know, it's still an amicable back and forth it's it's not like you're going to be one of those people that's like i'm gonna sue you yeah i think if oak dot were taking out the bike lane and putting nothing back yeah i think i would be i would line i'd be lining up my lawyer they're putting back a buffered bike lane which lots of streets in oakland have so mm -hmm. a buffered bike lane in a road is a safer street than the street was before it's not as safe as it will be with this upgraded project so the question is it's which question? Is it safe enough or which is safer? Which is the right question a lawyer would want to ask? And I'm not sure what the law would say about that. Wow, great stopping point. Great stopping point as we transition to uh, Sunset for All. But Dave, we would love to be involved in your strategy sessions, as you can tell. <laughs> okay, and, yeah, um... you're, my, you're my coaches now. <laughs> Dave, you're welcome to stay on the show. We're going to bring on Terrence Houston, who's working on a uh, protected, I guess it's a two-way protected bike lane here in Los Angeles right. on Sunset Boulevard. So that could be an interesting conversation for you to join us with if you would be, if yep. you want to. I'll hang on. I'd love to keep yeah, hang on. And, and Marvin as well. Um, welcome to the show, Terrence Houston. Thank you, Don um, Ward. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me back to Bike Talk, where there's just so much pretty on one Zoom screen. It's just too much pretty for a podcast. Check out this, this hair. I, it's fantastic. I love Terrence's approach, which is to butter <laughs> people up so that they agree with everything he says. It's, it's a wonderful strategy. Okay. Uh, welcome to the show. So give us the... Uh, okay, so Sunset, for uh, folks out there that that don't know there's currently bike lanes they're door zone bike lanes there's really substandard bike lanes in a lot of areas where they're like even narrower i think than what the um mutcd calls for right in some of the areas and it's a dangerous street because people are blasting up and down that street which goes through the heart of silver lake and echo park and so terrence is is they're they're fighting for a two-way let me see if i have this right two-way you're past the test so far. Protected bike lane that's going to be on the southwesterly side of Sunset Boulevard. It's up to the it's up to the engineers. It's most likely the north now, having had engineers take a look at it. Oh, really? Most likely oh, north. Okay. Side. Yes. Really? Um, 
Yeah, but no, it, it, it's super exciting because, you know, Sunset for All is a community-led project and uh, we're powered by the Los Angeles County Bicycle Coalition and we are teaming up to transform Santa Monica and Sunset Boulevards through East Hollywood, Silver Lake and Echo Park uh, and turn it really into a community main street for everyone as opposed to what it is today, which is just a vision zero corridor of death with suicide bike lanes. And um, I think what I really want to stress is how I don't even live near Sunset Boulevard anymore. And I'm still working on this campaign because this is the existential gap in LA's mobility plan. If you don't get protected bike lanes put on Sunset Boulevard that are in the mobility plan, there will be no way to enter downtown Los Angeles north of MacArthur Park in the entire city. Is that clear? Like that's how important these bike lanes are. So one of the reasons why I think the LACBC has gotten so, so jazzed to team with us and to uh, sort of drive this project and help us drive this project is that they really want, have, have expressed uh, an enthusiasm for trying to get juice behind regional transportation projects, behind active transportation projects that have regional benefits. And if you look at north of Koreatown to Hollywood, to you know, Burbank, to Atwater, to Eagle Rock, to Glendale, obviously Silver Lake, you know, Los Feliz, all of these neighborhoods rely on Sunset Boulevard to go to downtown and vice versa. And a lot of those neighborhoods like Lincoln Heights, I've met so many cyclists on like Silver Lake Boulevard, you know, commuting through who have to take Sunset Boulevard to go west. So this is one of those ultimate regional gaps. And it really is a referendum on whether we're going to have a working functional active transportation network in the city of Los Angeles. And that's why this campaign is so important. Hey, Terrence, is it a two-way street as well as going to be a two-way cycle track? It is a two-way street and it is a two-way cycle track. And uh, we have Rock Miller, who's the former president of the Institute of Transportation Engineers. We spoke to a number of engineers and engineering firms around the area to get input on the bikeways design. And you would be amazed at how many people said you should talk to Rock Miller. Rock Miller is the best. And so yeah. Rock Miller, yeah, because obviously bi-directional and a bi-directional street has more conflicts. So you have to do mitigations to make sure that those conflicts don't increase danger as opposed to mitigating them. Can you say a few words about the pros and cons of doing one-way cycle tracks on each side versus a two-way cycle track on one side on that particular uh, one, street? One way on both sides is politically absolutely a non-starter whereas bi-directional protected has the possibility of being installed. If we were to do- a loss do, of parking issue? It's a loss of parking issue as uh, always, or, you know, or a road diet issue, either one. Uh, <laughs> either one is NIMBY bingo, right? Uh, you're it's a have car trouble. supremacy issue. That's the word okay. you're looking for, car supremacy. Yes. And I, you know, I have a more prosaic view of politics than many of my, my fellow advocates in the biking community. I think that our electeds are very often a reflection of what the community wants and electeds are experts on, they're experts on, you know, community sentiment. And it's our job as advocates to change the community sentiment to be reflected in the electeds. And we would all love for every elected to take our favorite project and storm the gates for it. But um, it's just not a reality this far. So we're just trying to change the narrative on the ground. And one that way, way that we can do that is by crowdfunding the funds for the engineering. And that's what we're excited to talk about tonight. So you've teamed up, hey, it's Lindsay. Um, hi, Lindsay. Hi. So you've teamed up with LACBC and um, how, well, how's it going so far? I saw it blow up on Twitter. 
It's going, uh, it's going fantastically well so far. Last I checked, we were at 12% of our goal. I'm really hoping that we can get to 20% of our goal tonight because 20% is a great first day launch number to aim for. So if you are sitting at home and listening to Bike Talk, this really is a referendum. A, a donation is a vote for protected bike lanes. The electeds in all of the various council districts are watching to see if this project succeeds. If we're able to crowdfund just $25,000, it will unlock $25,000 in angel investors who are going to match our crowdfunding campaign. And then we'll be able to sign a contract at the following LACBC board meeting with Rock Miller. So it's really exciting. And I can't highly recommend enough that if you care about bicycle infrastructure in the city of Los Angeles, we need to win this campaign. Every dollar, every $5 donation, all of it is a vote for safer streets. So, so you sign the contract and then, and then what happens? What's the time frame, and what exactly happens next? Well, for a formal city outreach process, so this is actually the start of the process. So we're not trying to implement our vision on the community. This is actually how you start the community outreach process. So until there are engineering geometric drawings, you can't go out to the, the libraries and the community centers and the schools where they host these outreach events with LA DOT and with the council district, you have to have these geometric drawings to start that process. They're called the initial preliminary engineering because they're like the 30% drawings. And then the community crowdfunds their genius about how they want them improved, how they want them changed. And that turns them into the engineering drawings that lead to uh, getting grants like ATP grants and such like you guys were just speaking about to get it put into the ground. So this is necessary to finish outreach or to start the formal outreach process. We've been informally doing outreach to neighborhood councils, to businesses, to schools, and we've been very successful at the informal outreach. We have over 500 supporters. We have you know a, a ton of signatures on petitions, but really to to formalize the process so it starts moving forward at the city level, we got to get engineering plans. And that's what this crowdfunding is meant to do. Why don't we introduce Lindsay Sturman for the show? Lindsay? Hi, she, thank you. Yeah. Are you with Sunset for All or? No, no, but I'm a huge supporter. And um, yeah, and I, I've been hearing about it for a couple of years and I think it sounds amazing. I like so the strategy of actually painting, you know, the ideal and, and, and just serving it to them on a platter. I think that's a great idea, Terrence. And also it's interesting too, like uh, we like the strategy because it's vaporware as I walk around to, to city, to uh, neighborhood councils, as I walk around to schools, you know, or we talk to businesses, it's vaporware. They always have these specific questions. And once you have the actual geometric drawings, it's no longer vaporware. And we think that that sort of action has genius to it where people then have something Look, if you ask people to do outreach about something, everybody's like, sure, I'd like to do outreach, you know, and then some people show up, some people don't. When you ask people for their expertise on the community to improve, you know, drawings and engineering plans to improve their community, everybody's an expert on their own community and wants to lean in and be a part of that. So we also just think that just in terms of like gaining the energy of the community and crowdsourcing that energy, that this is a really great way to, to hack the system and to get it no longer vaporware, but something tangible that we're talking about and showing people. Sorry, what is vaporware? Vaporware is like software that doesn't exist, right? Okay. I'm not techie. It's I'm like, not a techie. Are, the, <laughs> are there concerns out there and, and who's against it? You know, there's remarkably little uh, you know, opposition to it. I know when we first had, we're covered 
And the first article in LA Curbed about the project, it got posted on the local like Los Feliz, you know, uh, Don Ward's been on there and many a, and many a community argument. Uh, Los Feliz, uh, Silver Lake, Echo Park, uh, you know, Facebook group with 10,000 locals. And it had like a hundred and some odd likes and loves. And there were like four people who were annoyed and unhappy. So like, it really is overwhelmingly popular. There are a few usual suspects who will always oppose any bike infrastructure. Um, and really the constituency that we have to win over that are not opposed to it, but we need to make sure that they understand all the details. And COVID has gotten in that way, as you can imagine in a big way, is the local small businesses. You know, it would require the removal of approximately 46 parking spaces to the best that we can tell based on, you know, guidelines. And so, convincing, uh, uh, but that's, uh, but once again, that's along 2.5 miles. So that's of just Sunset Boulevard, the entire project's 3.2 miles. Um, so businesses get nervous when they hear that, but it's actually very few when you look at the overall distance, it's about approximately one per block. And then when we show them the possibilities of having a cultural trail instead with protected bike lanes and how in Venice, the Ven excuse me, in Mar Vista, the Venice protected bike lanes increased the number of pedestrians in the central business district by 32%. Don Ward, what do you call pedestrians in a central business district? Customers. Customers, you call those people shoppers, right? <laughs> I knew you were gonna get that right. So, um, so uh, yeah, why, why do we go on vacation to charming little cities in <laughs> wherever, in Europe and so forth that have zero parking but we love to go there and experience those charming places. And then it's like everybody here in Los Angeles is arguing for LA to look like Asperia with parking craters everywhere. And yeah, and, and you know, relaunching business outreach is gonna happen in August, but right now they're all adjusting to the state reopening on June 15th. So this is a great way for us to get those drawings to be able to show them and to accelerate this process. We also think that it can accelerate the process by two or three years by just getting these drawings ready because they're needed to, to apply for funds. There's a whole bunch of infrastructure money that's gonna come down the pike. Federally, I think the state of California has already talked about an extra 500 million on active transportation projects. We don't wanna miss that's that right. launch window. We don't wanna miss that launch window. So Don, how much are you pledging tonight? <laughs> <laughs> I'm pledging you all my heart and soul. <laughs> <laughs> You got to vote with a dollar, otherwise it doesn't count. <laughs> Let me see what I can scrape I out saved. of my, my pockets. I got to empty my pockets here. I just, I just made roadblock blush. I, I didn't think that was possible. Hey, look, I found a dime. I can do this. Awesome. As, lo as long as it makes it onto the crowd fund, we, we, we have another vote. We can just put your name down as a vote. <laughs> so where does this money, where does this money go? It goes to the this engineering. It goes to the design of the... The link. This money will go directly to the engineering costs to design the initial engineering uh, and engineering drawings. So uh, the LACBC is the fiscal sponsor, you know, will take a small percentage. I think I think generally the, the, the industry standard is 10 percent. But beyond that, every single cent will go to engineering. Oh, man, or, let me get outreach. you on. Let me get you on bikeable communities. Dude. They do 2 percent. We'll get you a 2% deal. Except then we don't have the awesomeness of the LACBC giving us so much like um, uh, internal knowledge because uh, they're doing an awesome job, sincerely. Um, they should give that to you anyway. Yeah, that's well, the LACBC. So that's their job. Well, the look, real question is, is, is the real question is why do activists have to crowdfund for this in the first place? It's supposed to be the city's job to do I this. I was going to ask right. that too. Yeah, yeah. totally. 
how did it, this, it's, yeah we're, we're we're acting like a legitimate lobbying group i mean when you know developers lobby the city they have to do shit like this right they have to kind of do the city's job for them sometimes i like to think of it as public outreach is such a fungible process like can you define to me at what point is public outreach public outreach public outreached like i'm i'm not clear on like what is the metric of public outreach why by doing it this way we have a metric that we're able to show electeds that this is what the community wants and get it put in place and more than that show to the rest of the region that this is something that people are hungry for so they, they can stop start forgetting about keep la moving and start being afraid of groups like sunset for all because we have more voters we have more power and this is a way to prove it that's a good point to bring up it's like what is what is keep la moving how are they getting to our politicians i feel like they're working somewhere in the background what, what kind of activities do they do to get into the heads of, of our politicians. They're fighting for the status quo, Don, and the status quo is always easier to fight for. We're fighting for but, change and it's change that matters. So are they doing things like, like organizing phone calls and you, you know emails and stuff like that? They're, they're doing stuff like that, right? Like this is I mean, the opposition yeah. that we're up against. I've been to so Mar get, Vista. I've been to Mar mm -hmm. Vista, you know, defending the Venice Boulevard bike lanes. Once again, I would like to argue for regionalism here. Even if you're on yes. the west side, you should be supporting for Sunset for All or in the Valley like Don, supporting Sunset for All. I have been, uh, you know, at public meetings in Mar Vista defending the Venice Boulevard bike lanes, even though I lived over in Silver Lake at the time. And you'll see that they have a whole bunch of signs printed up. And, you know, I imagine that it mostly happens through next door because all bad things in the world happen on next door, right? <laughs> No, but truthfully, I also think, and I, I'm actually not exaggerating, I actually think that there is an element of right-wing politics in Keep LA Moving, and, and that's not said lightly. I know that the, what's the libertarian think tank? Reason the, Foundation. Heritage? Yeah, it was, it, was, it was either Reason, or there's also one more um, that's named after the, the, Latin, the, the Roman dude. Anyways, uh, the Cato, the Cato Institute is either Reason or Cato who sponsored Keep LA Moving sort of like anti-traffic calming conference a couple of years ago in Mar Vista. So okay. there's definitely, and they're the yes. ones who organized the campaign and are still organizing the new campaign to, um, to get Mike Bonin out of office. What's the term for it? To get rid of Mike uh, Bonin? The recall. Oh, to the recall, recall, the recall. So, you know, honestly, there's a recall, there's a, a recall against Bonin and there's a recall against Nithya Ramon too. Yes. But, you know, this is the only way that the right can find ways to have influence in a place as liberal as L.A. And they fool people who are liberal voters who don't understand the links between vehicle miles traveled. I'm getting all geeky now between driving and climate change and how much. So if you look at the data we, we met our 2020 climate change goals in California because we did an awesome job electrifying our power. We got the low hanging fruit. Right now, apparently we're not on track until 2056 to reach our 2030 goals. Oh. And the biggest driver of that is increased driving. We have to find ways. Wow. And one of the awesome things once again, once again about Sunset for All is right now, if you 50%, about 50%, depends on the source, it's either 47 or 49% of trips in the city of Los Angeles are less than three miles. It's the perfect bikeable, walkable, scooterable distance. But we force people into our cars in mountain passes like Sunset for All. There is no alternative route to Sunset. There's no parallel side street. 
It is a mountain pass. We force people to drive through that mountain pass to run every single errand because otherwise you're taking your life into your hands. We have to give people the freedom to choose the mode of transportation that is most appropriate for each trip without making them feel like they're risking their lives. That's what Sunset for All accomplishes. And if we win this crowdfunding campaign, it's the signal that we send to the region and the city that people are hungry for these solutions. Donate. Hey, Terrence, Donate now. You, yes. If this is successful, do you see more crowdfunding campaigns in the future? Or is this more like a kick in the butt? So that the I, do actually, I, going? I do think that the LACBC is excited about this model because it shines also just like a spotlight on a problem that needs to be solved, right? I mean, like how many community meetings have I attended in which we're not getting the retweets that we are today? You know what I mean? We're having a true, uh, you know, we Bike Talk, of course, is a leader, is a thought leader. So we've been on Bike Talk before to talk about these things. But the amount of attention that choosing to crowdfund has gotten, I mean, it's just exponentially higher. And I'm sure that level of interest is going to last for the next 20, 30 days, where we're really going to get that score. <laughs> Can I dance? Can I dance? Sorry, I was, I've, I've, been, I've been looking for that, uh, that uh, sound effect since something you said a little while back. I'm going to dance. I'm going to dance, Steve Love. Terrence, can I ask, what would it normally have looked like if you, if you, if you hadn't crowdfunded it? Um, I mean, I'm not an expert on, on, on how projects get put into the queue. I know that, excuse me, and this is, this is a lesser motivation, but it's a good one. I know that the city of LA, we have 7,500 miles of streets, right? And so fantastically, and I think Salida Reynolds has been wonderful about this, is prioritizing Vision Zero corridors. Vision Zero corridors, you know, are the 65% of streets in, in no, excuse me, the 6% of streets in Los Angeles, where 65% of the pedestrian severe injuries and deaths occur. So that is where the focus should be of LA DOT. And by the way, Sunset Boulevard through our, our project area and San Monica Boulevard through the project area are both on vision, are both vision zero corridors, but they added like a criteria and there's equity criteria to the vision zero funding. And so LA DOT has dozens of projects that they're engineering to save lives often in brown and black communities. And we think actually Silver Lake, you know, on the South side actually scores incredibly high on equity metrics. But on the North side, let's be frank, we have a wealthy community. And we think that if the community opens up their wallets and raises the 25K and they get, you know, you know, angel donor matched by other people with resources to get Rock Miller to create these great designs, you've taken that work off of the city's plate and left those engineers to focus on saving lives in brown and black communities, which I think is effing fantastic. And I think that's another reason why the crowdfunding model is a great model, especially for a community where the north side of the route is affluent, even though the south side of the route, route scores very highly on environmental disadvantage metrics and on economic disadvantage metrics. <laughs> just, oh, I just, oh. where on the street are you finding the space? The space? Go, go. yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, so if you uh, if you if you do uh, the the measurements, it's seventy six feet wide, and right now there's already ten feet of bike lanes in the street in the door zone in between trucks traveling. You know, forty five miles per hour. You get that really awesome eighteen inches where moms are going to totally take their kids and go shopping at the farmers market. Not. Um, so what we're doing instead is if you just add uh, two feet to the bike infrastructure, you can get protected bike lanes and keep all the lanes that are already in the street, they just get squeezed by six inches and there's plenty of room to do that. 
And some research has also shown that it actually makes it safer if you have slightly skinnier lanes because people have been have been shown to drive a little bit slower when lanes are skinnier. So it's like win, 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 win. Everything's a winner with Sunset for All. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, narrowing the lanes would be great. I mean, they should but narrow Terrence, the, my the, customers yeah. all drive. Nobody walks and bikes in my, my shop. So what are you talking about? I believe that you haven't actually asked your customers. <laughs> um, um, so what we're talking about, this, that's a good question. So right now we have a parking study in which we did time-lapse imagery of one week of parking on Sunset Boulevard. We compared Sunset Boulevard parking at the meters to all of the side streets where there are no meters at every single block. And I don't have the data in front of me, but we figured out that if you put in two parking meters on each side street, you would get more cars driving to your business for each lost parking spot on sunset, and you would have a protected bike lane. We'd also like to point out that you shouldn't be settling for a protected bike lane. You should be thinking bigger than that, okay? And here's where we, we bring up the Indianapolis Cultural Trail and show them an example of that, because the Indianapolis Cultural Trail is eight miles uh, of bikes and walking paths um, in Indianapolis, that have, have absolutely transformed that area of the city, um, you know, where, where people go there because of the amenities. Now, right now there's 10 million people on Hollywood Boulevard in downtown Hollywood visiting for cultural experiences about two and a half miles away from the protected bike lanes we're trying to install. Now, if Indianapolis can have a cultural trail, and I don't mean to be a little bit snobby here, but our neighborhoods are where the original film studios were started, where Charlie Chaplin started. Our neighborhoods are where the gay rights movement, the Mattachine Society, the famous black cat riots, even before Stonewall in New York started. We have incredible Latinx history. We have some of the greatest modern architecture in the world all centered on these neighborhoods. I'm sorry, but if we can't create a historic Hollywood cultural trail or a Sunset Boulevard cultural trail, and you're not gonna get more customers than a few lost parking spaces, uh, I don't think you're a very good businessman. Okay, well but do you done. say that? Do you, do you say that to, to a, like? I don't say the last part. And I would also like to add <laughs> that there's 150,000 people riding the subway right on top of the corridor every weekend. How much of the business, that business are you capturing? And when we actually get in front of business owners and show them these things, on top of it, there's actually, a, there's a bike path. Um, if you're familiar with this, if you lived in LA, there's something called the LA River Trail. It's the crown jewel of our bike path, but it's on the other side of a mountain range from Sunset Boulevard, to be clear. But it is just about three miles from Sunset Boulevard. There is a cafe that has no parking, that only is for cyclists and people who walk to it. There's no parking in the neighborhood. Parking in that neighborhood is hell. And yet it's insanely successful. And we have pictures and videos showing how packed this cafe is. And what is it? It's on top of a walking and biking trail. And that's where they get their customers from. It is absolutely insane to oppose having a cultural trail. Yeah, because one thing like, you know, it's pretty dense around Sunset. And if there's a way to get to a business that's maybe a mile down the road, um, other than driving a car, you're going to increase the chances that people in the neighborhood are just going to ride their bike there or walk there versus I think if you lived in that area, you'd just be like, I'm going to drive out of this area and find somewhere where there's parking. But if you can just walk down the street, you're increasing the chances that locals will just show up more to these businesses. And I used to live in the neighborhood. I, you know, my family owns two cars. 
I once tried after school to park like near Sunset Boulevard to go to the farmer's market. It was such hell that like, if I couldn't bike there and I didn't have time to walk, cause you know, when you have kids, you're like, you're in a hurry, you're coming back from work and you're like, I, you know, I have to get to the farmer's market and get my child home and fed before they melt down or really truthfully in my family before I melt down. Honestly, that's, that's the truth. <laughs> um, um, if I'm required to park, I'm not going to go. I'm going to shop somewhere else because it's impossible to park along Sunset Boulevard if you have to run an errand. But if they had safe infrastructure, actually be using those businesses so much more often. My argument is actually that parking is so difficult that it drives people away, making it a little bit less difficult will actually increase the number of customers that you have, or a little bit more difficult. Uh, I think this is a good place to plug uh, AB 1401, which could Wonderful. Uh, get rid of parking requirements near transit. There's oh my God. Corridor. Right? And Metro is like the biggest violator of that. Like they own a bunch of property around the Metro station. I love that. And then they build 3,000 parking lot developments around their, their fucking... Uh, transit stations it's it drives me bananas when i see that like the one over at uh, western and wilshire there's this huge development there that metro owns and there's a huge parking structure there you're like why are you guys doing this this is the one agency that should be able to park to build without parking spaces around their station it's crazy God bless Laura Friedman. And can I, I say that she's written a letter of support for a grant for Sunset for All? She's awesome. She is great. She wrote a letter of support for the Hyperion Bridge, too, which is another thing that's coming up on the, on the agenda. We're going to start building that. we got to make sure that they give us what they promised, which was bike lanes on that bridge. <laughs> That'd be great. All right. Well, we're going to talk to Marvin Norman now. Uh, thanks, Terrence. Sunset for All. Do we have the... Is it an easy to remember link? Okay, so la-bike.org slash sunset for all. Okay. And is that an FOR or the number four? The number four. So it's la-bike.org slash sunset number four all. Perfect. Donate. If you want bike changes in the Southland, you got to donate. Thank, Thank you so you much for having me on. Thank yeah, you. And if you, if so you want to stay with us, you're totally welcome. But I know you got a family and kids. So probably. I got to get those kids way. outside. I got to get those kids outside. You have okay. a great night. Thank you so much for having us. All right, All right Terrence. Terrence. Take care. I'm looking Thank for your Terrence. name on the donor list. Thank you. Great to <laughs> see you. I'm going to, I'm going to donate. Thank you. Yeah, you should, Nick. Donate on behalf of uh, me and you for bike talk. Okay. And me too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How about you, Lindsay? Uh, okay. down, we got to throw down like at least $500. I already gave. Okay. I figured. Thanks for hanging in, Dave. We want to talk to Marvin about, I always see Marvin like get, being ganged up on, on social media. Yeah, but he's like a warrior though, because he's got this intimate knowledge of statistics and. Yeah, he's not phased. Yeah, he just like whoops that ass right back into shape. <laughs> So the, what tell us, tell I'm us a what, gang of one. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of times it's about people are, there are these groups that are just anti-protected bike lane and they used to be called vehicular cyclists. Now they're integrated cyclists or no, they like the, they, they've gone to um, bicycle drivers or um, right. some like to call themselves. Shoot, what's the other name, Don? 
I know what you're talking. You know, I know. I know you're yeah. talking about. I can't remember well, what yeah, it is. Yeah, you know, I don't understand why they don't even like to be called vehicular cyclists. Like that, well, that irks so, them. So I call them that all the time. It's because John Forster was a very abrasive man, as a yeah. as it just outside of his, his cycling things, he was just abrasive, and he made a lot of non-friends, and really poisoned the 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 movement in terms of you know how it's seen. And so they switched to um, bicycle driving or savvy cyclists and stuff like that. Yeah, they switched to those to just kind of differentiate themselves from Forster. And you know, <clears throat> Forster started it the more opposition, but some other people did kind of develop more of the lane control methods that Forster didn't necessarily champion at first. So yeah, mm. they they changed it to move away from Forster in part because see he had poisoned the you know interesting. The whole, Okay. So what's the deal, Marvin, about protecting lanes? So, well, the first thing is that in, I believe it was 1972, UCLA put out a study as the state of California legislator had required them to do on biking because, you know, that was when biking was a boom. And they recommended separated infrastructure in a number of cases. And if you've seen the um, product from Alta for about intersection design, they actually you know include some graphics from that thing which showed stuff like protected intersections um, as being recommended way back in 1972 or so. And so, you know, this is not new. In 1976, um, Ken Cross and other people did a study where they, they identified that protected Separate cycle um, infrastructure could greatly reduce what is the single great, single biggest source of fatal crashes in biking, which is same direction crashes. So like either side fives or like a drunk person runs off the road or, or on some occasions people riding in the lane get run down. I have put up a couple um, ghost bikes for people who were taking the lane at the time when they were hit. And so Ken Cross put out that study in 1976, but around the same time was right after the UCLA study got published, the state started working on design manuals and standards. And that's when John Forster enters the the equation because he found out about that and he organized a bunch of people and they all got involved and convinced the state to to at least not do fully separate, physically separate um, facilities. So when the state started putting out its design standards, it dropped physically f- protected facilities because the you know the influence of people like uh, of of the recreational cyclists who didn't want to be uh, quote unquote hemmed in based on Forrester's uh, experience in Palo Alto on one side path. So. At, since that point through about the late 2010s, no one really bothered putting in bike facilities uh, that were separate until, you know, the, about 20, 2008, 2009 was when uh, New York started putting the first ones in again. So, okay, so you've seen, so it's complicated, would you say? Um, no, I mean, it's not really complicated. It, the, the only complication is that we've had 40 years of vehicular cyclists saying, um, gaslighting the facts. <laughs> And unfortunately, hundreds, maybe thousands of people are dead in the process who would still be never have been killed at the time we had used those facilities. And we know this because we see the safety record of places, you know, around the world that have installed them. But even here in America, as we start installing them, those places, fatalities decrease. So Uh, the data is is not ambiguous. No, not uh, there is not real ambiguity. There is a point to be made that sometimes Americans in their infinite wisdom like to cut corners 
And when they do so, it creates situations that, that do not in, meet up to the same necessarily safety standards as you would hope to have. But part, a lot of that is, again, you know, Americans like to cut corners. And a lot, a lot of times there's this belief that, you know, Dutch and Danish and, and you know, Finnish or whatever, that European infrastructure won't work in America because we are, quote unquote, different here. The only difference is that we're unwilling to use their stuff because what, when you come down to it and look at it, the reality of the situation is that their, their infrastructure isn't based on culture. It's based on, on you know, hard sciences. Cars don't stop any different in Europe than they do here. People don't, the European people aren't more uh, resistant to getting hit by cars. <laughs> it, it's the, the, the basic sciences that they're based on are the same around the world. So the only reason they won't work here is if we start cutting corners and, and change things about them that make them work differently. Well, that is the argument the uh, bicycle drivers make, right? Is that the infrastructure is going to be bad infrastructure. It, it is the argument they make, and, and sometimes they're not wrong. And part of it, though, it also is a self-fulfilling prophecy. Um, Dave, Dave might be familiar with this. Um, if when we passed the law to, when we were working to pass a law to make uh, these types of facilities here in California, there was a big last-minute push from the vehicular cycling side of bike advocates in California to, um, they, they kind of launched a letter-writing campaign and were trying to focus on people. And one of the things they were, focusing on getting people to write in and complain about was that they, they want to, they, they were hoping to get the bike facility that separate facilities would quote unquote, not look mandatory. And so, because they're concerned that they would be required to use them and then they would not be suitable for quote unquote, high speed biking. And uh, to be fair, there are some instances where some of these things that get built that you wonder why would they do that? But the other side of that is that you create a self-fulfilling prophecy because if you want to make a facility that, that doesn't look mandatory and doesn't look usable, then the inevitable result is that you really create a facility that's not really usable. And it's unfortunate that, um, quote unquote, uh, experience cycling has been conflated with fast cycling and, and also sports and recreational because the truth of the matter is that, you know, a bike is about three or three and a half, four times as efficient as walking. So the average person should be able to go about four times as fast on a bike as they can while walking. And since the average person walks at, you know, 2.5 to 4 miles per hour, a reasonable biking speed should be anywhere from 10 to 16 miles per hour. That's a reasonable speed that you should be able to expect anyone to achieve on a bike. And what happens is that because vehicular cyclists insist that separated infrastructure won't work for a fast cyclist, that a lot of times you get planners and engineers who decide that we're not designing the facility for the serious cyclists and the fast cyclists will choose to use the road. And so they decide maybe, you know, 10 to 12 miles per hour is a reasonable design speed, which, which works, but it's not necessarily reasonable because, you know, normal people can get faster than that. And there's a reason the Dutch designed their bike paths for 20 miles per hour, because that's the reasonable speed that people can achieve. In, without effort i'd like to also point out that like your average speed you can achieve in a car across an urban grid is not much more than 15 to 20 miles an hour oh no yeah LA is... and marvin on on telegraph ab where they're threatening to take the bike lanes away the average speed is 17 miles an hour for the car so in Oakland now, there's crazy traffic everywhere. Not many people live on a street where the average speed is well below the speed limit. Is that, was I that mean, the average speed before they put in the bike lanes? Or Oh, no. Oh, no. Before, right? Than the, before, the, speed, the average speed was higher than the speed limit. 
before on Telegraph, the average speed before the bike lanes were put in? Yeah, the average speed was higher than the speed limit, which was 25. And now the average speed is 17 miles an hour. Every urban grid that I've looked at, like I use Google and set Google to like 3 a.m. travel time. And it's like most trips through any area, any grid that I've seen, your trip time is something like 20 miles an hour when there's no traffic. And I'd be curious if that really was like, you know, red light to red light. I'm sure that the speeds were higher than the speed limit, but I'm curious you're saying that the average trip speed across like a couple miles of telegraph was more than 25 miles an hour. I kind of wonder about that. Yeah, they, uh, they do the speed surveys when the streets aren't crowded versus, you know, they do car counts during but those the speed. Hour, but... Those speed surveys are only um, they measure at one point. They don't measure across several intersections you know what i'm saying like when they set when they do those speed surveys they'll plop somebody down with a speed gun and measure the prima facie speed between red lights and drivers drive like maniacs between red lights and then they stop at a red light and then they wait 30 seconds Uh, or 20 seconds and that's how they set the speed limit they don't actually take like a a five mile or a two mile stretch of road and check what the average speed is they're just checking like spot speeds am i saying that right marvin yeah i mean i I think dave is familiar with like the speed survey thing too we're pretty involved with ab43 and all yeah i think you're talking about two different things in that um yeah 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 i mean yeah i'm talking about like trip speed like if you go from point a to point b and it's five miles and you're going through an urban grid your speed is 15 to 20 miles an hour on average that's what you're going to with waiting for lights no matter how fast you go between lights you still got to wait at a light and that kills your average speed that's what i'm talking about i'm not talking about but uh that's that's a good thing that the cars if they were slowed down and maybe that's the real reason that people oppose the protected lanes is just they can't stand to see cars slowed down right i mean if if you can if you can slow cars down to their average trip speed, you know, like what we talk about, Nick, hypermiling, like I could drive down telegraph and not hit a single red light, my I would bet you that you you know, it's like okay, seventeen miles an hour, right? I'll bet you with a five lane road on telegraph, if you still time the lights, you're still gonna be like it would be very unusual if that street wasn't like twenty miles an hour average even with a five lane, you know, and you're still having to stop at lights, like your trip speed is still going to be something like 20 miles an hour. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Yeah, definitely. And, and, I, it does. and I think it, it comes out, you know, kind of the big issue too that we have in America is that we, we value the illusion of speed over actual speed. And so, you know, we have these, um, you know, we have the street design and, and like 85th percentile and all these other types of things that encourage fast speeds but then the actual travel time is not much faster. And so, you know, you have jackrabbiting, as I call it, between people speeding up. And this is a big issue, uh, the big issue with our Vision Zero problem. And because we, we, we value this, we let this speed erode our urban environments, even though it's not even, turns out to not even be a, worth it because we're not I, moving any faster. I, you know, the, the, the street out in front of my house, the speed limit is 45 miles an hour. I can't get... 
past these lights, I mean, I can go, I can reach 45 miles an hour and then I get a jam on the brakes at a red light. And then I got to wait 20 seconds or 30 seconds for the light to go green. With no one crossing at the cross street. Yeah. If I just slow down to 20 miles an hour, I don't actually have to wait for the stoplight. But unfortunately, our streets are not built for you to drive at 20 miles per hour. They're built for you to drive at 50. And so you get people coming up behind you, blowing their horn. Totally. And God knows what else. That's one of the most enjoyable parts of my driving time is when I see people lose their minds behind me, drive around me, jam up to a light, and then I'm timed for the green and I just coast through. All right. So, Dave, we are available for consultation through <laughs> July 6th when big meeting happens. Do I need to fundraise Dave. to afford your services? <laughs> we are free, as always. Much appreciated. Thanks for having me on. I'll, I'll let you know how it goes uh, July 7th. Yeah, cool. We'll, we'll that... look at Streets blog. Yep, for <laughs> sure. Yep, for sure. We're, we're pulling for you, man. So, yeah, we All definitely right. want to have you back on and give us an update. Okay, we will do. Thanks, everyone. Marvin, good to see you. Yeah, likewise. See you all. Thank you, Dave. Thank you, Marvin. Thank you, Lindsay. Thank you. Don. Shows I care Every turn of the pedal Cleans the air Clean in the green I'm saving the planet Just like my friends Dale, Sean, Toby, and Janet No greenhouse gas A tiny carbon footprint Up your ass I'm on a motherfucking bike I'm on a motherfucking bike Thanks for listening to this episode of Bike Talk If you want to hear more Go to kpfk.org Navigate to Programs, and choose Bike Talk. On the Bike Talk page, click on the Archives link to play or download shows posted in the last four months. Go to biketalk.com and copy or click on the RSS link to subscribe. Our Twitter handle is BikeTalkPFK. On Facebook, we are Bike Talk. You can become friends and join our group.